Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Let's begin our morning with a prayer together. Heavenly Father, Father, Divine Mother, Mother, Friend, Beloved God, God, Great Masters, masters, Jesus Christ, Christ, Babaji Krishna, Lahiri Mahashai, Swami Sri Yukteswar, and our beloved Guru, Paramahansa Yogananda, Saints of all religions, friend and guide Swami Swami Kriyananda, we bow to you all. Divine Mother, help us to fully embrace the gift of these teachings and of these techniques. Help us to live this life as a channel of the joy and bliss that these impart. Divine Mother, receive us. Make us one with Thee. Om. Peace. Amen. We'll start this morning with two songs by Swami Kriyananda in the Temple of Isis and Song of the Nightingale. Comes away. 
it's a blessing to be sung to uh, by such angels. <clears throat> I am Naya Swami Maria, and with me today speaking are Shanti Rubenstone from Ananda Palo Alto, uh, Naya Swami Riman from Ananda Seattle, and Naya Swami uh, Dharmadas from Ananda Sacramento. Thank you, Badri. Our subject this morning is meditation, finding the source of inner happiness. I was especially excited to uh, hear this title because in my own life, it was the thought, I remember exactly where I, not exactly where I was, but the feeling of it. And this thought overwhelmed me. And the thought was, if you are going to find success and happiness in this world, you are going to first need to realize these within your own self. And by that time, I had been practicing yoga postures for a couple of years, so it was a natural extension to think of meditation as the way to achieve that. I wanted to just highlight some of the aspects of what happens in meditation through the techniques that we have uh, as a way of looking at this. I'm not going to go into Kriya. That will be addressed later in the week, but the other techniques. And I'd like to start with energization. Yogananda said of this, you don't know what you have in these exercises. How oftentimes had, has Swami uh, reminded us in his life, throughout his life, from the very first time I listened to classes that he gave, reminded us of the simple truth. When, we, when our energy is up, we are happy. When our energy plummets, we go, you know where, <laughs> just all goes out. And energization is that vehicle through which we get in touch with energy in a very profound way. Energization tunes us into cosmic consciousness through cosmic energy. And as we experience that energy, we realize that we're not this little body. We're something much more than that that we can draw in that energy. We can utilize it, incorporate it. We can control it. We can direct it upwards towards whatever we are seeking in this life and, of course, in a spiritual sense, toward God and in deep meditation. A very, very profound technique. Yogananda said of Kriya Yoga, Kriya Yoga is the airplane route to God. Well, if that is true, then energization is the boarding pass. It's, it's really the way we get on that plane. We're not going to be able to approach it. We're not going to be able to go with it without energy. And as we work with these exercises, what we start to experience is a whole new world. And that gives us a whole new view on life. We start to experience energy in the self, energy without limitation, energy in the spine, energy in the brain, all this energy. And we start to experience the energy withdrawing from the outer extremities. We realize that it's not 
outer things that sustain us. It's not the food that we eat that sustains us. It's divine energy. And that this energy is nothing less than the same quality of energy that'll take us to God, that'll give us liberation in this life. So these are not to be looked at lightly. There's something very deep and very powerful there. I remember many years ago, uh, a student, he came, he was new, he took uh, energization, he took beginning meditation. And his profession was such that he was a ghostwriter. He wrote scripts for the Hollywood scene undercover, you know, and someone else utilized their name, got the fame, the whole, you know, thing. But he wrote the script. And that necessitated that he mix with that genre of people all the time. And I don't want to make generalities here, but... Uh, the scene oftentimes that he found himself in was a party scene, a lot of liquor, a lot of drugs, a lot of uh, socialization in all manner of ways, and uh, just something that was very engaging outwardly. And as he started to begin with these techniques, something very interesting happened. He found that he wasn't attracted to these things anymore. He didn't like them. Still, he had to frequent that environment. And finally, through energization, through meditation, and feeling his reality more and more in the spine and the strength of that, the power of that, he found that he was able to resist those things, not even be interested anymore. And one day in such a setting, someone came up to him, one of his buddies, and said, Hey, what's going on? What gives? You're usually right in the thick of it with us. Why aren't you? You're not even interested in this stuff. And he said, It just left me. That's the power of living in that divine energy that reality of cosmic energy in the spine. And that's what we work with in energization, whether we're new on the path or whether we've been on the path a long time. We all have been in the place where we need more energy and we need that quality of divine energy. It's not enough to have health in these physical bodies. It's a great thing, comes in handy, but... (laughs) But it comes and it goes, and much more important is that energy that moves upward in expanding awareness and gives us what is a lasting happiness, not something that is just temporal. In the practice of the Hong Sa meditation technique, one of the things that we do is we use the mantra Hong Sa. It means I am spirit. And again, this is a very integral ingredient to our happiness. We are focusing on that mantra, and again, whether new on the path, whether we've been on the path a long time, when we take on the consciousness of that mantra, perhaps we see ourselves for the first time without limitation. Perhaps we see ourselves as not just somebody who can't be successful, who doesn't fit in, who some people don't like, or someone who will never be as happy as so-and-so, all of that starts to fall away because we are spirit. That's not only our mantra, our affirmation, 
but it becomes our consciousness. And in that consciousness, we start to perhaps get a little distance from this drama we call life. And we step back. I am spirit. And we look at our lives, again through this technique, as an observer. You know, we're watching the breath in Hong Sa. We're watching it come. We're watching it go. And we look at our lives. And we watch people come. And we watch people go. And we come and go. We come into this world and we leave this world. And the sooner we can step back and look at life as an observer and watch this drama that is our life, this drama that we get to live in this incarnation, the sooner we can do that, the happier we become. It's so easy to look at other people's lives and to think, if they would just do this, they would be happy. Why can't they just do it? It's much harder to look at our own lives and see what we need to do to be happy, to make it be different. But if we can step back, it starts to become clear. You know, we start to see ourselves as spirit. We start to observe our lives. We look at all of life from a very different point of view, a point of view that blossoms as happiness, that comes to us as happiness. Uh, Kriyananda, when he was first in the ashram with Yogananda, he found himself, it was when Yogananda was alive, and he found himself in a mood and observing it, you know, seeing it for what it was. He didn't like it. It was consuming his consciousness. It was uncomfortable. Not only he didn't like it, but he wanted to be done with it. And he remembered Yogananda's words. Yogananda said, Concentrate intently at the spiritual eye, and the light that you experience there will dispel all darkness. And so Swamiji did that. He sat in meditation. He said it took him five minutes. That's all. And it was gone. It was all gone. That mood and everything that went with it entirely erased as though it had never been. And that's the power of concentration. Again, something that we come to in the beginning when we learn meditation. But I can say I am still trying very hard (laughs) to learn how to concentrate. It's something that we will revisit again and again until we go entirely into and merge with that divine consciousness. I wanted to read uh, to you a letter it's a little out of season, but uh, it caught my attention. It was something I came across a couple months ago, just going through personal papers, and this was evidently something my mother saved for a long time and gave me just a few years before she left this world. And it's a letter to Santa Claus. <laughs> and it says here, To Santa Claus. Dear Santa, I missed you a lot. I have been waiting to see you some time. I wish I could see you some. I think you should see me sometime. <laughs> I can't wait until Christmas comes. 
I've been waiting for a long time for Christmas to come. Love, Maria. (laughs) Well, aside from being cute, I suppose, Uh, and I suspect Santa did come that Christmas, but when I read this, it, it really caught my attention because while this is kind of cute in its own way, how much greater is it that we offer that kind of one-pointedness and deep concentration and focus on God? When we, in meditation, concentrate so deeply, and again, this is one of the great blessings of Hong Sa, of that technique that Master gave us, when we can concentrate that deeply, a window is opened. And it may be small, it may just be a little, a little opening, but with that opening onto that divine reality, our devotion is fueled, and that divine romance begins. And once we start to walk that path, it's, it's not far off in the distance that we figure it out. It's very early on. It's from the beginning. And we figure out that this relationship of love between us and Divine Mother is something that nothing else in the world will ever give, can ever promise us such a loving, complete relationship, such divine happiness. And so this meditation technique, it's so fundamental. All that Hong Sa gives us, these, these aspects of it are fundamental to seeking happiness, to finding happiness, peace, even-mindedness, a sense of distance uh, from our own life, the life we're living, all of this, extremely important. And we find that this depth of concentration, this depth of focus, this awareness that we are spirit is bringing us a very profound happiness. There's a song that Kriyananda wrote. To my knowledge, I don't think there's words. Uh, It's an instrumental. Memory is a lost joy. And this Just these words really come to light in the practice of the OM technique. You know, that listening to that sound, that melody of love, that song of the soul, it comes to life through that technique, and we get a very direct experience of it. There is a wonderful story in the life of St. Francis, and he is walking through the fields, uh, covered in snow. It's a blazing blizzard. It's winter time, just him and one of the brothers, Brother Leo. And they're headed back to the Port Siankala, which is where they live, along with the other brothers. And it's cold. All they've got on is their cloaks and their bare feet, maybe some sandals, but it's cold out, and they're hungry. And they're walking along and bracing themselves against the snow and the wind, And all of a sudden, Francis, who's out in the lead, he shouts out, Know that even if all of the brothers practice high moral virtue, even if they are able to heal the sick and cure the lame, that this is not perfect joy. And Leo perks up because he he knows what 
is capable, what, what, what channels through his brother Francis, and he feels already fortified in this little morsel here of inspiration. And they go some distance, and again Francis shouts out above the wind, and he says, Know that even if all of the brothers amongst them can speak all languages, if they know the qualities of plants and can converse with the animals, this is not perfect joy. And again, total silence. But Leo's heart is illumined, and he awaits what is sure to come. And further they go. They go another mile or so. And again, Francis shouts out, Know that even if all of the brothers can convert every last soul to the teachings of Christ, this is not perfect joy. Well, at this point, Leo can't contain himself any longer. And they're going along, and he picks up speed, and he comes close to Francis, and he says, What is it? What is perfect joy? And Francis says, if we arrive at the Porziuncola, and if we knock on the door, and if the door opens and they look upon us and recognize us not, they see us disheveled and wet, and we're starving, and our cloak is just sticking to our skin, and, and we're hungry, and they recognize us not and shout at us, get out of here, go away, never come back. And then they step across the threshold and they beat us and they throw us to the ground. Know that this is perfect joy. (laughs) Well, he wasn't asking us to imitate his life in this way necessarily. But what the point I really wanted to make here was that Francis was able to say that because he lived it because he lived in the joy and happiness of God inside. And this is why Jesus called the Om Technique the Comforter. We just feel blessed. We just feel comforted. And we feel whole. We feel like we're on solid ground. And it doesn't really matter what else happens. Master said, when you are an Om, nothing can touch you. And I know I can raise my hand and say that's true. And I know a lot of you, maybe even all of you, can say that. Your consciousness just remains outside of the drama. And it's a blessing and grace that comes through this technique and through spending time with God in this way. When Master was a very young boy, he decided to have a deep meditation, longer than usual. He'd been anticipating it for a long time, but always something would get in the way. And so one day he said, This is it. Today is the day. And he sat down to meditate, and he said he awakened in ecstasy, just a short ways into the meditation, this flood of ecstasy came upon him, and he forgot everything else. He was just bathing in that vibration of Om. And two days went by, 48 hours, 
Swamiji tells this story in a a wonderful book, Stories of Makunda. It's called 48 Hours in Eternity. And so he's in this meditation, and after two days' time, he comes out of his meditation, and he gets up, and he goes out of the room and starts to go downstairs. And at that moment, one of the servants of the household is walking up. And they just slightly brush each other, just barely touching. And that servant was in that instant healed of a malady that had caused him great pain and suffering, I think, throughout his whole life, but certainly for a long time. And so I thought of this in thinking about happiness. Some people would call it a selfish pursuit. But in reality, it really enables us to live the life that we want to live and that we're destined to live. If we find happiness, happiness of a lasting nature, of an enduring nature in God, if we realize that joy within ourselves, which is the gift of these practices, we are able to do what we came to do what we want to do in this world. We're able to truly be a channel for Divine Mother and a channel of divine joy. Thank you. Good morning, everyone. Always a pleasure to be here with everyone during SRW, as it is again this week and certainly this morning. I have an extra joy that was added on to my trip this time, and that is through God's grace, I'm sure, uh, I've gotten to stay in Swami's Dome over at the meditation retreat last night and tonight. And uh, I share that now because I'm certain that a lot of what came to me last night and a lot of what I'm feeling this morning had to do with being able to just go in there yesterday morning and be in silence and quiet and keep saying to myself, Swamiji was here for so many years. He spent so many hours in this place, and I really have no idea what it looks like now compared to what it was when Swamiji was there. But I would look at the color of the walls and walk into the kitchen. And then last night, going into the meditation room and realizing how many hours he must have spent in that space. And as I sat, the instant I sat, feeling such extraordinary calmness and joy and thinking to myself, I have to go there tomorrow and say to everybody, do this. We have to find our way to be in these places where these very great saints have sat and prayed and realized God. It was quite an extraordinary experience, and I'm saying it to say to everybody, do it, whether it's at the meditation retreat, which is wonderful. We all know all of these grounds are sacred. As soon as those of us who come from the outside walk into the expanding light, we feel it. And certainly about the meditation retreat, which was the first piece of property in all of Ananda, So it has been meditated on, prayed in uh, the longest. 
but the dome is really wonderful. And the same is true of Crystal Hermitage. So if you have the opportunity, do it, because here we are talking about meditation. And what greater way to give our meditation a real boost than to sit there and just realize we are sitting uh, where Swamiji has sat. As I, as I was sitting there, not very long into it, the story came to me uh, that I heard through Swamiji. I don't really know the source of it. It's not a story, but a, a, an image uh, where Swamiji talks about when somebody's asked him about how many years it takes to realize God. And the image is imagining a big lake, a very large lake, and every 5,000 years, a bird comes and takes one drop of water from the lake and flies away. And 5,000 years later, the bird comes back and does the same thing. And Swamiji says, that's how many years it takes to realize God. So that came to me, obviously, as a thought, not in deep meditation. And I said to myself, 5,000 years? Really? That is not right. So I started negotiating. (laughs) I started negotiating with God on all of our behalf. That's the truth. I said, this is for everybody at SRW. And I said, come on, Divine Mother. You have it in you. You could bring the bird back in 4,000 years or maybe 4,500 years. And then the thought came to me, Shanti, forget the little bird. Time is an illusion. And I was trying to tell myself that. But, you know, that's very hard to tell yourself that because that means nothing to the rational mind. But as that thought came to me, I remembered one of the letters that Frank Laubach, for those of you who don't know him, he was a Christian missionary who in the early 1900s went to the Philippines. I say he was a Christian missionary, but in all truth, I think he evolved into being a self-realizationist because his energy, his essence, is so completely in tune with our path. And um, his son published a book of his letters called, uh, I think it's Letters by a Modern Mystic. Um, And one of those letters, and I didn't have the book, so I may not get this exactly right, but this letter really struck me when I read it many years ago. He said, I hope to be able to deliver to these people what I've discovered. He didn't say what I've learned, what I think. He said what I've discovered. And I think he meant what he's realized. And he said, uh, he said, every Every place could be heaven. Every moment can be a magical mystery. Every man can know God. And then he says, in fact, every man will know God as soon as he can speak to God or as soon as he is speaking to God and as soon as he can listen. So right after I was telling myself that time is an illusion, that beautiful letter came to me that said, now is the moment. This is the truth. 
And it also, of course, brought to me the fact that meditation is listening. There was Frank Laubach saying it. Meditation is listening. It's not a passive listening. It's not, as Swamiji says, the way we sometimes listen to our friends, our mind wanders, we fix our hair, we worry about whether our clothes are on right. Who wants to speak to somebody like that? (laughs) It's an active listening. It's got passion to it. It has expectation to it. It has demand with it. You know that your prayer, which is when we speak to God, will be answered in meditation. It's got a power to it. And that's what meditation is. That's why that prayer that we say every Sunday in our uh, Festival of Light, and I will love the Lord my my God with all my heart, with all my mind, with all my soul, and with all my strength, is so powerful because it has energy, it has activity, it's inclusive. Who could not listen to that prayer when we say it? Now, why does it even matter that we come to God with so much energy? It matters because God will not enter our lives until we invite him in. So we have to make the invitation, and that's what active listening is in large part. And then we have to show subsequent cooperation over and over and over. As soon as that's gone, God can no longer come to us. This is all a part of where meditation takes us, actively listening and opening ourselves to the flow of grace by inviting God in and then by cooperating with that flow of grace. Otherwise, there's no way for him to come to us. And what does that cooperation look like? It looks like, as Maria was saying, concentrating our energy. It looks like offering that energy of our consciousness up so that it can receive God's energy. It looks like keeping right thoughts, right-mindedness, positive thoughts. And then we add devotion. We can't meditate without bringing devotion, or our meditations are simply dry. And after all of that, then we quietly allow ourselves to go into a receptive mode. And that is how we open ourselves to the flow of divine grace. Meditation is listening. Meditation is opening ourselves to the flow of divine grace. These masters want to come to us. They don't have to come back here. We say in our festival every week, a prayer of love went up from earth and you responded. And then a little later, talking about the masters, from a life of infinite joy and freedom in God, this is where they're living, from a life of infinite joy and freedom in God, willingly to embrace limitation, pain, and death. This is what they're willing to do. They want to come. So 
why is it so hard for us to let them in? Why is it so hard for us to deeply meditate and call to them? Yesterday, Joe Tish, very early on in his talk, he said, if we move towards the soul, we move towards happiness. If we move towards the ego, we move towards suffering. And then he said, so why aren't we saying, go home and meditate on it, that's it. That could have been, go home and get, get yourself self-realized or get yourself spiritually renewed. That could have been the essence of spiritual renewal week. But why is it so hard? We are all, of course, reminded of that little story of the bird who's in a cage, and though its nature is to fly and be free, he's too afraid. He's basically too afraid of the unknown, which is in essence how we are. We're afraid, and our ego capitalizes on that and gets to hold us right where we are. It's Jyotish mentioned what happens when the uh, sperm and the egg come together, and in that very instant, a soul comes in. So soul attached to a body, Master says, is what, it, what we call ego. So from that very instant, there is a huge force, a huge outgoing force that's sending us out into the world, sending us out there to discover what is. And at the same time, there's a force out there pulling us out. We're not doing something so horrible by getting lost out there. It is part of the human condition. But what meditation is all about is really doing everything we can do to turn ourselves back in the direction of soul reality. Swamiji says we live in terms of those limitations. We lose ourselves in those limitations rather than realizing ourself in eternal truth. I was thinking about the uh, Bhagavad Gita. Of course, it's such a compelling story, and we've all heard this many times. But I thought about Arjuna, and Jyotish mentioned him yesterday. He mentioned him in terms of um, real um, discipline, uh, real strength. And I was thinking about, of course, we know Arjuna, who represents um, all of us, disciple, every man he's called. And yet he's Arjuna. He was the disciple who was, after all, chosen to sit in the chariot with God himself. So he must be a pretty highly evolved disciple. And he represents the third chakra, which also represents fire. We know that the element of fire, and fiery willpower and determination. And yet there is Arjuna, who spends some time not only bargaining with Krishna, not only saying to Krishna, can't I just do some of this? Can't I let go of a few of these qualities, but hold on to the rest? And at one point, we don't call it a temper tantrum, but in essence, he throws down his bow and arrow and he says, I'm not doing this. I'm speaking to this because I'm saying it's hard. It's not easy. It's all very simple, but it's not easy. The, the, the battle of Kurukshetra, 
that goes on in each of us all the time that we work with in meditation as we draw the energy up our spine through our third chakra and direct it to the heart chakra where we can bring in devotion. That battle is about conquering all of those, we hate the word evil, we don't like to think of ourselves as evil, and of course we're not, but those evil tendencies, those tendencies that would tend to keep drawing us out into the world over and over. What does purification mean? Why would we focus here? Why is that focus in meditation to bring the energy through the third chakra where all of that can be purified. Because purification really means burning or transforming everything that is not the love of God, where all of that energy is going. It means getting rid of all of that, transforming it from solid matter into a form, air in this case, or love, or the devotion that we're going to add in to something that can expand so much more freely than everything that's come before. So this is what we're aiming for. This is what we need to do. But it's, it's just not easy. It takes practice. It takes practicing all of the techniques that Maria spoke about. It takes opening to the to the flow of grace. It takes bringing devotion into our meditation. And it takes great willpower and determination. Now, where is the hope in all of this? Swamiji said that the very instant that we plant, that the desire to know God is planted in our heart, We are virtually free. Those are his words. Virtually free. Yesterday we listened to Joe Tish talk about what he's been doing with a chant. Leave, uh, um, I'm sorry, now I'm losing the words to that again. Receive me me on thy lap, O mother. Leave me not at delusion or at death's door. And he spoke to us about how he's been working with that. I remember many years ago being in a meditation uh, with Jyotish and Devi the, or the morning after Kriya initiation. And in that meditation, Jyotish said to us, let's use this meditation to focus on Master's eyes. Close your eyes and see nothing but Master's eyes. When I was sitting in Swamiji's meditation room last night, there is, of course, a big picture of Master in there. And you know those eyes. No matter where you go, they're on you. doesn't matter how far you move, where you go. And I realized last night, it doesn't mean just in that little room. It means everywhere. Wherever we are, if we can keep our attention focused on Master's eyes, He's with us. He's watching us. Every moment, the, I'll close with this now, the story in Autobiography of a Yogi. Um, it's way too long to tell right now. It takes chapters for Master to tell it, but starts with Babaji calling Lahiri Mahashaya up into the Himalayas. It's a beautiful chapter. I wish I could talk about it. I love to talk about it, but I, I will restrain myself. But that whole story unfolds 
because Lahiri is told right then, you're going to take Kriya, uh, you're, you're going to bring Kriya back into the world. And he knows right away that eventually Kriya will come to the West. And then, of course, he passes that on to Sri Yukteswar, who's told, Babaji will be sending you a disciple. And, of course, who is that disciple but our Paramahansa, Yoganandaji. And the end of that story in India, as Sri Yukteswar is sending Master off to the West, he looks at him and he says to him, anyone who comes to you with faith will be healed. That's us. That is who we are. We are here with faith. What a beautiful promise. We practice these practices for those of us who have Kriya, we practice Kriya. But if you don't, you practice Hongsa. It can take you really very far, if not just as far. I don't feel entitled to say that because I don't know that for sure within myself. But it's a wonderful practice. We are those people. We are the one in 1,000. Out of a thousand who seek me, who, out of a thousand who live, one will seek. We are all of us here, everybody who's here, the one who's seeking. What a beautiful promise. We will be healed, meaning we will find God if we practice. So that took me back to my little bird last night. And I thought, who knows what impact I had on God? You know, I can be pretty powerful too. And I was really beseeching him to cut that down from 5,000 years But I thought to myself, so what? The truth is, we're here. We're virtually free. We will be healed. That means that lake is tiny. Our lake is tiny now. That's what it means. It hardly matters how many more times, how many more drops of water the bird has to carry off. All that matters is that we get up each day with this deep, deep determination, heart wide open, filled with joy, knowing that any time now, God will be coming to us. Well, every year when Padma and I come from Seattle down to sunny California, we take a few days to see our relatives. And uh, I rediscover, I'm from California originally, we rediscover that Californians really are sunny. (laughs) Where I come from, we have what we call sun breaks, And what we do is we break out in a smile sort of randomly, but most of the time we're kind of surly or at least reserved. And so somebody in Seattle, you know, Kriya Yoga may be the airplane route, but airplane travel has gotten a lot less glamorous. And sometimes you get stuck next to somebody who is a little talkative. So I understand someone in Seattle in our boutiques thinking about selling these T-shirts that uh, are sort of preventive medicine for that loquacious fellow traveler. It says, ask me about my religion. (laughs) Now I was thinking that Maghi here at the boutique might want to do one that says, ask me about meditation. And I think that'd be a little bit more friendly and 
probably get a better response or a more appropriate one. But here we are speaking of meditation today and Lahiri Mahashai, Yogananda's guru's guru, often counseled people to go into meditation to solve our problems. Well, if you're out of a job and you go to meditate, well, it reminds me of a story Kriyananda, Swami Kriyananda would tell once in a while. I don't know its origins, but he said there was once a uh, contest in which different students had to write an essay on the camel. And uh, so the American, for whom money was no object, got on an airplane and flew to the Far East and investigated all about camels. The the Englishman, being a bit more parsimonious, went um, to the local zoo to write his essay. And the German, of course, went to the library and did a very scholastic, scholarly, with lots of footnotes, essay. But, and this was told by a Hindu, the story, a Hindu went upstairs to his meditation room, closed the door, sat in lotus pose, and prayed that the essay be dropped in his lap. (laughs) Now, I don't know about you, I do enjoy meditating, and and I'm very thankful for it, but I I doubt that would happen to me, that an essay would drop in my lap. And so, if we're going to talk about meditation, I think we also, at least sort of by way of full disclosure, need to accept that I don't know how many hours you try to be awake during the day, but whatever it is, not a very large percentage of it probably, is spent deep in meditation. And so meditation by itself is a means to an end. It is not the end in itself. And thus it is we can't really divorce our meditation, our life of meditation, our practice of meditation from the rest of our life. So that having been said, Let's chat a little bit about meditation. There was a man many years ago, and this is typical of people I've counseled and met over the years in teaching and sharing these, these great techniques and, and so forth. And he was close to retirement, and he took our Raja Yoga course, Art and Science of Raja Yoga, and was learning meditation. He was quite enthusiastic about it. Well, towards the end of the three-month course, he really eagerly wanted to talk to me and so on. And so he said, well, you know, I, I know you've been talking about that for those who'd like to learn Kriya, you can go on and, and take the training in Kriya. He says, and I've thought a lot about that. I'm very enthusiastic. These teachings and practices are changing my life, he said. But, you know, I belong on the street. I belong here in Seattle. And and my work is to um, just work with the people and, and help people. So I've decided not to go on. Jyotish and, and Shanti, just a few moments ago, both mentioned what it is that prevents us from going deep in meditation, what prevents us from having these deeper experiences we seek. And that restlessness that she talked about when the sperm and the ovum unite and the body is built and we sort of pushed out, pardon me, um, into the world and uh, we have to do battle with all the needs and so forth, all the Darwinian kinds of things that people talk about. And so, yes, we're, we're quite, quite busy. I, when I worked here at the retreat years ago, I remember meeting somebody, and this is pretty typical, I think, Nandi would corroborate and others, and she said, you know, I've never been alone at all in my life. This is the first time I've ever been on my own. 
And I think that's true of most people on this planet. They never lead, uh, never have a day on their own. And so there's a great deal, it's like a force, some would call it satanic, but in any case, whatever it is, there's a force that keeps us out there. But there's something else. You know, my little granddaughter, uh, Gita's uh, daughter, Tulsi, um, loves to play peekaboo, right? I mean, it's fun to play peekaboo no matter what, you don't have to psychoanalyze it, but, (laughs) well, I do. I read once, I don't know if it's true, but it just seems like a good story, that uh, psychologists say the little baby, the infant, has to figure out whether or not um, you exist when they can't see you. You know, what is true? And it's an interesting perspective because when I teach meditation, I sure, it's all bliss and light and all this sort of thing, but, you know, there's another side. When you enter in through the chakras and it's not, you know, there are lower chakras, remember? And there's some denizens of the deep down there, and one of them, sort of existentially speaking, at least for everybody, no matter what stuff you have to work out, is the fact that we're afraid of the dark. We're afraid to confront ourselves. And so one of the things I like to share with people is get to know yourself, like that song from, um, uh, what's that, uh, the hills are alive with music? Uh, Getting to know you? No, that's King of Siam. Okay. Uh, it was never my, my thing. But, you know, get to know yourself. It's sort of like, imagine meditating and, ah, oh, finally. And it, it brings me to the thought that, you know, the thesis of Yogananda's life work and mission it was not theology, it was not credo and having to believe and, and all these things that most of us sitting in a place like this have more or less turned our backs on, at least in terms of anything inspiring. It's very simple, as Jyotish mentioned. It's that all of us are seeking happiness. And in his original book, which he didn't write, The Science of Religion, and which Swami Kriyananda rewrote, uh, Calling God is for Everyone, he identifies basically three things that, that we seek in that process. I mean, apart from wanting to avoid the unhappy things, we seek it through pleasure, we seek it through what is normally passed for happiness, human happiness and fulfillment, and then finally, ultimately, in the soul's fulfillment in itself as bliss. But meditation is a lot like that, too. In the early stages of meditation, there's the romance of religion. You know, it's it's sort of fun to have a beautiful altar and have this really cool shawl, and maybe I've got this perfect cushion, and look how wonderful I look when I sit cross-legged. Don't I look like a yogi? And, you know, and then, okay, it's fine. There's nothing wrong with it. It just sort of gets you going, you know. It's romance. But a lot, of what, a lot of what passes for meditation, that's the problem when it spreads out, is the simple fact that, um, well, like, like Jyotish's or Davy's story about the woman, he said, oh yeah, we did that. Um, you know, there's a lot of people out there. Somebody the other day told me, a relative, yeah, I, I, I tried meditation, you know. And that's that restless force that keeps us out there. And, and so the sort of pleasure of meditation is, is useful to people. Okay, you kind of get into it. And much of what passes for meditation as it becomes popular is more of a mindfulness kind of thing. And so there's a pleasure in basically 
withdrawing from the stress, I mean, people seek meditation on that level, at least, for stress reduction and so forth, and peace. And it's, it, peace is, as, as of the first chakra, peace is the guardian, the sentry of the inner castle of the soul. And peace invites us in to be still and know. And so people naturally seek peace in the beginning. And because I've attended, I don't know, thousands of group meditations, but anyway, a lot of them, um, sometimes you go into a group meditation and you sort of have this intuitive sense that somebody's sitting there literally, uh, if not literally, but hugging themselves. Oh, honor just so wonderful. This is so nice. And, and so like the merchant, and it's a good beginning. I'm not knocking at it. It's just where we all start. We, we want something out of it. And so we have the pleasure of meditation. But of course, that is simply a contrast to the stress and to whatever it is we're of trying to avoid. And therefore, it, it can't last. It can't make us any happier than, than pleasure through the senses can provide for us. And so there's something else. I've heard Swamiji say, all of you have, many of you have, I'm, I suspect Yogananda, Master, did so also. He said, for those who are attracted to the inner path, the path of meditation, you must have done this many lifetimes before at some time in the past. And as a teacher of meditation, you see that. You, you see people who, like the duck to water, they just get it. And so the next stage of seeking happiness, which is an extremely wide spectrum of, of even lifetimes, but in any case of development in our consciousness through meditation, uh, we enter that stage because it's not about the pleasure. It, there's something that resonates with us, that draws our heart, that draws our mind, that draws even the body towards this stillness. In the beginning, it, being a spectrum and all, it's we might go from the sort of pleasure of a quick meditation or getting some peace into the longer rhythm, get past the romance and into the relationship, because meditation is a relationship with our own self, with God. And so in that, we, we develop consistency. We develop the habit of meditation. And from that, we begins the transformation of our consciousness. But at that point, you know, um, Gita here wrote a blog. Uh, I wrote a, uh, started a blog a couple of years ago, and, and uh, I guess she's trying to outdo me or something. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> but she wrote a blog the other day which very, on a very important subject because that touches right here, which is the difference between virtue, goodness, human goodness, and the soul. As, as I know, Kriyananda often quoted some medieval saying, I don't know its origins, that the road to hell is paved with good intentions. I've met many good people on the, in my life, and I'm sure all of us have. And then I've met some, a few devotees who really are a pain in the neck <laughs> and seem like to me that they have a lot of work to do. But they're devotees, you see. As, as I think Shanti just said a few minutes ago, we must approach God consciously. We must be willing to do that. And like Moses, who was forbidden into the promised land because representing symbolically, though he was, Yogananda said, a master in the story of, of Moses, symbolically he represented the ego, and he could not enter the promised land. But the ego 
was the guide from captivity. So in this spectrum of happiness that we seek through meditation, the transformation of our life, there has to come a point when no matter how we much we might enjoy meditation, no matter how much how many powers, as Patanjali puts it rather formally, uh, how many things come to us, the magnetism that develops through meditation, there comes a point when the ego, the sort of the existential issue. You know, the symbol of the cross is a wonderful one, and not just because of Christianity. The symbol of the cross includes the breadth of energy drawing in to the center. That's when we get our act together. That's this first stage of, of, of magnetism, of happiness, of being successful by self-control, by uh, energy, awareness, etc. But the second stage Kriyananda identifies in the art and science of Raja Yoga is where the real battle lies, which is the vertical plane by which the, the soul encased in the body in the form of kundalini, the entrenched vitality. I love that definition. I've never read anything so powerful. He says kundalini is the entrenched vitality of our mortal delusion. And when the soul in this spectrum of seeking happiness through meditation awakens to the reality, to the invitation, to the smriti, to the memory of who and what we are and that the happiness that we seek is within us, then the real work begins. And so that can be a very, very long spectrum the final, of course, is bliss, and that too has its own internal length. Patanjali talks, for example, about, he uses the term samadhi in the Yoga Sutras, and, it, and it, uh, he goes on and on. Also, it's rather confusing, to say the least. But in any case, he does identify more simply, for our benefit, four stages of a typical meditation, perhaps, or four stages of meditation over a longer cycle. And the four stages align with the first four chakras. I won't bore you with the Sanskrit names. They don't mean anything to me either. But, you know, in the beginning, and I'll use the example. First, I'll start with one example. You're out for a hike, and you're, you come around a bend, and you see a flower. And you, do, you don't know what it is. And you look at it, and what is that? And I don't know anything about flowers. But, so I'm just going to say a rose. It's one of the few I know. And so... I say, oh yeah, you know, that that's must be a wild rose. It's got thorns and stuff. And so, so at first you puzzle over it. And then you identify it and you're satisfied. Oh, yeah, it's a rose. And suddenly, because you gave it a name, it's like, hi, how are you? You need a name in order to know somebody, right? <laughs> Even in the Bible, when they were speaking of the, of the demons, what do you call them? Devils, I guess. Um, one of the keys in, in that whole issue of dealing with such entities has to do with knowing their name. If you know someone's name, you have a key of some sort on a much subtler level. But anyway, so you're happy about that rose. And then so you continue with your walk, and so you're feeling happy about that. And then the happiness begins to fade a little bit, and you're content in yourself on your hike. And so in meditation, in the beginning, let's say you, you, you feel peace. 
descending on you. And at first you question that peace. Well, I don't know. Is it really? Am I really feeling peaceful? Why am I feeling peaceful? I had a lousy day. And, and you know, you just you have this all inner dialogue. Then after a while, if you're after all that, you're still feeling peaceful. Uh, <laughs> suddenly you think, hey, it's okay. And so you, you're happy with it. You begin, you simply enjoy it. But after a bit, if meditation takes you deeper, then the happiness of peace or the peacefulness of peace begins to fade like clouds, uh, like fog in the rising sun. And what you're left with, like the nectar after a sacrifice, to quote the Bhagavad Gita, what you're left with is this just pure contentment, this pure happiness. But Patanjali goes one step further, and this, of course, is the most difficult for most of us to relate to, or at least to express in, in, in words. And that, he says, then that, that aura of happiness, which contains within it the seed of, I am happy, this is wonderful, then that too fades. And he says, you're left in sasmita with the self. Now, clearly, though he doesn't say it, there is, that is bliss. But in the culmination of the centeredness, which is one, there are no conditions. There are no adjectives. And Patanjali, being a rather clinical type, simply leaves it at that. He doesn't elaborate, doesn't feel to. And so the process of meditation brings us to that point, as Jyotish spoke about, which is the underlayment, which is the source of the only thing that can make us happy. But then our, our other speakers will talk about how to supplement that, how to live the life that supports that meditation. But we've been very, very, very blessed with the science of meditation, because that is what appeals to us. The science and the study of happiness is all the rage these days in various social studies and so clinical trials and clinical studies, uh, also with the brain and research of that nature. But we are very in tune, if you will, with the consciousness of those who seek truth. And in that, we are very blessed. Thank you. There is a story that Swamiji would sometimes tell of a little snippet of conversation that he had with Anandamoyi Ma. And just to put a little context around it for those who might not know this, he had a very sweet relationship with her. He said he he was able to have the kind of connection with her that he would have liked to have with Master, but he wasn't mature enough in his years when he knew Master because he was still rather young and and he had had more breadth of experience by this time when he was in India later on. And so she would play with him a little bit sometimes. And in this particular situation, he was speaking with her. I imagine he was speaking in Bengali because I think he was fairly fluent by this time. So he was speaking directly with her rather than through a translator. And he was saying something about Kriya, And by way of being specific, he used the phrase, my Kriya, by way of sort of differentiating from other Kriyas, of which there are many, many in India. And she interjected immediately, no, 
my Kriya. <laughs> and he sort of stopped and chuckled because she real- he realized that she was sort of playing with him. And he told the story lightly. It wasn't a heavy interchange by any means. She wasn't correcting him. She was sort of just playing with him a little bit. But it brought to mind an important point that uh, will will round out a little bit of what we've spoken about today and what we'll speak about later in the week with Kriya, that we don't own our meditation. We own certain parts of the process. We own the fact, or we need to own the fact, that we have to place our rear ends on the chair for meditation. We have to get ourselves there. It doesn't happen otherwise. The process is not forced upon us. We also have to own the exercise of our will in order to practice the techniques. That part as well is our part. But what happens beyond that point is we have to receive meditation Another way to think of it might be we have to become an instrument for meditation to come into this world. I remember uh, many years ago in the monastery, I would uh, connect with Nitai, who at the time was in charge of the monastery, and we had this little dialogue about sadhana and attendance at sadhana, and occasionally my uh, lack of same. Um, at sadhana I remember one time he said I haven't felt your energy he sat in the front so he you know unless he had eyes in the back of his head he wasn't but in fact he hadn't felt my energy because my energy hadn't been there for a little while but he he said to me one time something that struck me he said well I had a restless meditation today and he said I went to Divine Mother and I said Divine Mother you've given me a restless meditation now, this was striking to me because I certainly had, I certainly knew from restless meditation. Restless meditation was a familiar uh, f- art, shall we say. I always felt tremendously guilty about this restless meditation. And when, when we read the phrase in the Bible, be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. It, he, we might note that Christ does not say, be ye therefore extraordinarily discouraged, depressed, annoyed with the fact that you are not yet perfect. And yet you're meditating, you know, be ye therefore perfect. How do we get to that perfection? And this I would like to address by touching, Riemann just spoke a little bit of the science of meditation and, and the others as well, but there's an art to it also. And the art of it, Maria and Shanti both referred to the importance of devotion. I wanted to just give a little bit of framework for that. When we read about Sri Yukteswar, when we perhaps read the holy science or relate to the wisdom that he imparted to our Guru Yogananda, we sort of, there are words that we equate with him, sternness, 
Master even used the, the word that his discipline was none other than drastic. A little bit extreme, we might say. But there are a number of words that we do not associate with Sri Yukteswar, and yet we should. And yesterday, I've been wanting to do this for a long time. Yesterday, for the first time, I actually counted in the holy science the number of times that Sri Yukteswar uses the word affectionately. Now that, I, I would wager that's a word that you would not expect to come out of Sri Yukteswar's mouth or off out of his pen. He uses it six times in the holy science, affectionately following the precepts of the guru. And then I thought, well, let me take this one step farther. And I looked up love 44 times in 77 pages. Sri Yukteswar talks about the heart's love. Sometimes he's quoting scripture or he's translating scripture, but he's reminding us, practice your techniques affectionately. What an interesting way to go at it. To me, that sort of rounds out devotion. Devotion can seem a little abstract. If you experience it, it's wonderful. But it's something to cultivate. But how do you cultivate it? When you feel affectionate, it's hard to imagine an intimate relationship, a a close, loving relationship with no affection. And perhaps that's outwardly what Master had with Sri Yukteswar, because late in his life he sort of cornered Sri Yukteswar and kind of obligated him to say the words, I love you. And he did, a little bit uncomfortably, seemingly. But, but inwardly, Master would say, he felt the signature of Sri Yukteswar's blessing on his thoughts, on his life, on his process. And that part of it is so important, because otherwise, as, as Maria mentioned, or as Shanti mentioned, it can, be get, it can get a little dry. We know we're in the meditation We've, we've spent a lot of time in the recent years on really long plane flights. And an interesting thing happens when you get on an airplane, and, you know, Jyotish and Davy are about to go on a long flight, and a few days later we're going to be on another long flight to Europe. And you, it's like the, the collective airplane, the collective group on the plane sets its will Okay, this flight may be 12 hours long, it may be 9 hours, it may be 17 hours long. I mean, there are flights that long, believe it or not. Somehow, we're going to get through this. We're going to find a way to make this happen. And for those who have ever sat down for an 8-hour meditation at Christmas time, you sit down and there's this collective willpower in the room that says, you know what, we're going to do this. We're going to do this for 8 hours. And not only are we going to do it, we're going to enjoy it. And then, you know, 60 minutes, 90 minutes into the meditation, you know, perhaps the normal amount of time that you would sit for meditation is up and you sort of look at your watch and, oh my goodness. Or, or on the airplane, you know, you look at the little readout where it's telling you how long until you arrive at your destination and there's still nine hours and 47 minutes till you get there and you think, oh my goodness, this is going to go on for a long time. But you know, there is no time. And we have to learn to step out of time. How? 
How do we do that? I want to tell a story that some of you perhaps have heard. This is the story of a brother disciple of Swamiji's that he knew in his years at SRF. And his name was Brother Premamoy. He was he was also sort of referred to as the Yugoslavian prince, Yogi, because he was born, in fact, into a royal family in that country. And later on, as the politics changed and shifted, uh, he was no longer in that role. But he... He was very highly educated. He spoke 11 languages. He must have been able to converse with Swamiji in a number of those. He also made quite a number of first ascents, meaning that he was either the first one to climb that particular mountain at all, or else he was the first to climb that particular pathway, that difficult ascent. And he had arranged one of these, and he would climb by himself sometimes, he thought he could see up this mountain to follow a path that no one had ever taken before. And he got to the point where he was near the top of the summit. He had reached a ledge where he was safe. It was an extraordinary, extraordinarily difficult climb to get to that point. And he, didn't, he couldn't see it from below, but the mountain came out above his head, came out horizontally in such a way that he simply could not go beyond that point. And he tried. He would climb up to the point where his body was starting to be horizontal, and he would fall back to the ledge. He was safe. He wasn't going to fall down the mountain, but he would fall back on that ledge. And he could not go back down the mountain. The climb was much too difficult. It would take much too long for him to do it. He would have died in the attempt. Neither could he go up the mountain. And he thought, well, what shall I do? If I stay here, I'll die. I'll starve. No one will find me. I won't live. Place yourself for a moment, if you're comfortable doing so, place yourself on that ledge and follow the trend of his thought. He thought, well, if I can't do anything else but die here. I might as well die trying. Might as well die trying to go up that mountain. And so he did. And he went up and he fell, up and he fell, up and he fell. And 20 or 25 times he tried until finally he felt this force holding him to the mountain upside down. Impossible and yet possible. And he was able to get around the edge up to the top, which was very near, and then he was able easily to come down the other side because it was not, the mountain itself was not so difficult to to descend. It was only that particular pathway that was very difficult. I would suggest to all of us that we live at one point or another, at one section, at one stage or another of that mountain. Some of us are climbing to get to that ledge. Some of us are on that ledge. Some of us are falling down, falling down, falling down. Some of us are resting on the ledge, thinking, I just don't know if I really want to do this anymore. This is just, this is not fun. Will I continue whether it's fun or not? And Imagine for a moment 
the will that it took. There's a, I'll just, there's a quick aside to another story of him that I just read. He was in a concentration camp during the Second World War because of his royalty connections and that he found himself on the wrong side of that war. And he was to be executed. And it happened to be raining that day. They were all lined up. They were getting ready to go. And as it rained, he stepped out of the line of the people and he sat under a tree nearby. Well, one of the guards said, hey, you know, what are you doing over there? Get, get back in the line. And he turned to the guard and he said, you can shoot me if you like, but you cannot make me stand in the rain. And, and the guy, I think, just didn't know what to do with this. And he said, all right, go back to the barracks. And he did, and he lived. He didn't get executed. I don't know why exactly. I mean, there must have been something else. But think for a moment, because all of us, you could think, you're on that ledge. You're stuck. You can't go down. You've got impossible both ways. Down is impossible. Up is impossible. Listening to the papers flutter is impossible. (laughs) And what will you do? Grace is what makes the impossible possible. Because all of us could say, Samadhi, impossible. I can't get there. I practice the techniques. I get so near, but I can't quite get there. And how? How do we get to that point? We receive it. We open ourselves to receive it. And we do it with affection. We do it with love. When you feel affection, there's no barrier. There's no sense of, oh, but I couldn't. A friend once drove 700 miles for a first date. And this was reported to Swamiji, who I think sort of chuckled a little bit, but he said, hmm, that's energy. (laughs) Yeah. Well, we have to have energy, as Maria was pointing out. We have to bring our energy to the process. But it doesn't mean that by our will alone do we get there. We have to hoist the sail. The wind carries us. The wind is divine grace. We have to set the sail. We have to adjust the sail. We have to tune into how to move the boat. But we don't move the boat ourselves. God's grace moves us. And in connection with this thought that there is no time, I'd like to leave us with uh, perhaps a challenging image. But think of this. I'll I'll express it in terms of a question. What if, what if you were realized right now, right now, that as as Jyotish said yesterday, that not only have you achieved a higher degree of happiness and made that realization permanent, but as the Bhagavad Gita says, those who incessantly worship me, absorbed in me, united with me, I make good their deficiencies and render permanent their gains. Imagine that that process is now complete and forever. You have nirbhikalpa samadhi. You've experienced temporary samadhi. You've gone beyond temporary samadhi. You've 
you've released the ego into the infinite, and now you are a pure instrument for God's blessing. Now all that remains between your your infinite consciousness and final liberation is going back through these pesky incarnations and seeing that God, in fact, was the doer in every one of them. Swami would would always talk about your incarnation as a pirate for some reason. He really liked that one. Okay, pirate, banker, you know, train robber, whatever it might have been, you know, all the colorful ones and, and all the, the, you know, they, the people who reincarnate, they always do it as kings and queens and whatever. They never do it as the plumber or the janitor. You ever notice that? But imagine for a moment that that's the place you're in. You are now meditating through the lifetimes, seeing God as the doer. And just as the image Jyotish gave us of of a long sequence of film, and you've come to, in this meditation, you've come to today, you've come to this moment of this incarnation, and you are seeing God as the doer in everything that you do. What's to say that you are not dreaming your own existence from that place? There is no time. There is nothing separating this moment from that moment. All we have to do is awaken. And Divine Mother has set the alarm clock for us to awaken from this dream of Maya. You could think of meditation as attunement with that meditation which isn't over here, it's actually over here. But imagine that you're attuning yourself to the place where you have perfect realization and you're just remembering this incarnation. Means you can go forward, you can go backward. Enjoy that bliss. And meditation can be listening for the alarm to go off. And now it's time to wake up from this Maya. Now it's time to wake up from this delusion. Together this song, How Shall I Love Thee, Lord My God. Mm-hmm.